first verse of Psalm 122 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now I'm going to tell you how I'm most related to this verse. I'm most related to this verse when, it started, when I started high school, and I'm going to tell you why. My father did his, my, first of all, my father was the valedictorian of his high school class. Second of all, my father graduated summa cum laude from Duke. Then afterwards, my father-in-law, my father, excuse me, my father attended Yale, uh, where he graduated summa cum laude from Yale Law School. And then he attended NYU, where he graduated at the top of his class and was asked the next year to come back and be a professor. And then you have me. <laughs> so what happened was my dad said, here's how it's going to go, Paul. You're also going to graduate at the top of your class. And I said, under my breath, no. But anyway, just very quietly to myself. And he said, so wait, your Sunday afternoon is going to look. You're going to go to church in the morning, and then you're going to come home, and you're going to eat lunch. And then you will go to your room. I don't care what the weather looks like outside. You will go to your room, and you will stay in your room all afternoon studying until church that evening. I don't know if you've ever seen a Bengal tiger in a cage. That's kind of what it looked like for a little while at, at, at my house. And so you can bet when 545 rolled around and my mom said, all right, it's okay, we can now go to church. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And I mean like glad with a capital G. Actually, the, the, the text where it says, I was filled with joy to rejoicing. Joy right there literally means filled with gladness to the point of laughter. Filled with gladness to the point of laughter. That was until I began to work for the church. And when I began to work for the church, this verse quickly went away. And I mean like went away and hid. And Sunday mornings would come around and it depended on the way the church was structured. It depended on so many different things. But Sunday morning my alarm would go off and I would go, Sigh. and I was in a church at the time. By the way, Baptist and contemporary worship go together like oil and water. And so in the Baptist church in the 90s as a worship leader, I was leading worship part-time at three different church ministries around the city of Richmond and full-time youth minister at another church. But the church where I was full-time, I'd had a conversation where the pastor staff sat me down in a room and the conversation went like this. If you want to do that contemporary worship, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Verbatim. So I was so glad to go to church those mornings. And I don't know if you've ever known the difference between a real grin and a plastic grin. Those are the plastic grin mornings. Those are the mornings when I get up to read scripture from the church and I'm doing this, but inside I'm just dying. And I was not glad to go and be in the house of the Lord. And yet it had nothing to do with the church, but it had to do with the people of the church. And the church has an identity crisis. As we understand, the church... And then there's also this real tug that the church is also the bride of Christ. And the church and the bride of Christ often aren't seen as the same thing. Uh, ladies, I'm going to say something really offensive to you. When I was in middle school, we had a term called a blocker more. A blocker more. Do you know what that is? That's a girl that looks good from a blocker more away. So you're getting, it's starting to get to you now. And the bride of Christ seems beautiful when she is far away. And then those of us that have been wounded by the church as the bride of Christ gets closer to us, she loses the allure of the bride of Christ and simply becomes the church. And yet the church is the bride of Christ. Flawed, 
and yet beautiful. And I'm going to say in contemporary worship, the church as a bride of Christ has been made perfect in salvation and washed by the blood of Christ. But the frustrations that we have with the church are because Christ is actually now as we speak sanctifying and perfecting the church. And sanctifying and perfecting the church is an arduous process. This is a psalm of ascent about the church. It's not about the temple. And so before you think that this psalm is about the temple or it's about the temple in Jerusalem, read the fine print right at the beginning of your psalm. The psalm is written by who? David. And what did not exist while David was around? The temple. That was built underneath his son Solomon. And so also, too, this, song is not, this psalm is not about gaining favor by praying for Jerusalem. I'm going to say that one more time. This psalm is not about gaining favor with God by praying for Jerusalem. God does not work that way. God does not store up brownie points for you by praying for Jerusalem. You can't do what you want to all week long and pray for Jerusalem and receive blessings for God. The song is about praying for peace for all. David says that in the last part of it, I will pray for peace for all. But this psalm is about God's people. The the psalm is about God's people. It is about God's worship, and it is about God's peace as well. And the other thing about this psalm is that there are no secret things in this. I had a conversation about two weeks ago with someone who was telling me about why they didn't like to listen to a bunch of different pastors. And they said, I don't like to listen to pastors. I like to go look at it for myself. I don't like to listen to what these people say or what these people say. Because I know that, especially in the Bible, there are so many secret things that nobody really talks about. And if you can figure out those secret things, and I want to say, the gospel is so plain. The gospel is so plain. And so as we read this text, this text is about loving the body of Christ, loving the people of God, and praying for her. So let's look at this text, and let's look at, if you've got your Bible, turn your Bible. So when you look at verse 1, we'll go verse by verse. And the reason we do the verse by verse is because we want you to have some expository part, and we want you to see what the verses are saying, but we want you to be able to apply it to your life as well. So David is the author. And this is first, he says, starts out as, as I was glad when they said to me, because it is a psalm of decision of the will. Whenever you decide to worship, whenever you decide to go to church, whenever you decide to follow the Lord, that is a decision of the will. It is a choice that you actively make. And David says, I am going to worship. And what he meant was, I'm going to go to the tabernacle. Now, this, this may have been while he was living in Jerusalem, so he didn't have a far to go. It could have, been, could have been written when he was not living in Jerusalem, but it doesn't necessarily matter. And you've got to realize, when David writes this, he is thinking back on many a time, and you and I don't have, the, don't have necessarily the, the way to grasp this, but I'm going to tell you how you might grasp this. If you've been in the military, you realize that there were times where it was Sunday and you could not go to the house of the Lord. If you've been in the hospital, especially for an extended period of time, you know that you have been in the bed wishing you could go to the house of the Lord. Some of us have worked a job that has just been so constraining to our time. And while everyone else is worshiping, you are working. But for the rest of us, the house of the Lord is pretty much a thing that we take for granted. We can go whenever we want to. But David would have understood this because where was David as he grew up? Number one, David was a shepherd. So I guarantee you there were times where everybody else was doing, was, was doing the worship, was doing the, the Israelite family thing, and David was off with the sheep not able to worship. We also know that David was a fugitive. David was a fugitive. He was a fugitive sometimes from his own family. He was a fugitive from Saul. He was a fugitive in the military. He was a fugitive not being able to come to the house of the Lord. David was also in exile. He was exiled, especially even by his own son, Absalom, who exiles him 
And he has to leave, and he's not able to go to the house of the Lord. He's not able to go to worship. And then he was also an outcast, even among the, Philipp- the Philistines. He's an outcast. And so when he says glad, he literally means, I was glad. There have been times that I couldn't go. And when someone says, let's go and be in the presence of the Lord, I was glad. So verse 2, there's a fast-forwarding. Verse 2, there's a fast-forwarding. And even though David may have been in Jerusalem, he's talking about the pilgrimage that every, every Jewish person, every Jewish family must make as, 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 as commanded, actually, in Exodus. But he says, you know what, the journey, now we're here, the journey seems like nothing compared to when we get to the destination of being able to be in the presence of God. And so in verse 3, there is, this, there is this literary comparison that goes on. So this is where a lot of people stop, and they don't kind of look at the way that this verse is worded. But if you've ever seen Jerusalem, Jerusalem is a walled city. When it says it's tightly knit, literally it is, it is a walled city. You can't expand past a walled city. Everything is built and is tightly knit inside it. So their buildings, the walls, they're all tightly knit. Yet this wording in this text, the wording in this text is meaning a close and intimate community. Is it a close and intimate community of people? You know, buildings are inanimate. But the people there is a close-knit community and it is bound by worshiping the Lord. It is bound by the presence of God himself. And so in verse 4, he begins to expand on that, and he says, all the people of Israel, the tribes. And what you've got to realize is the people, of the people of Israel, all of Israel, north and south, this is in a time where the, the kingdoms, are, kingdoms are together, each of the 12 tribes, they were spread out. Dan to Beersheba, they're all around. And so they're each spread out, but they had a commonality in that they called God Lord. They called him Lord. And they had a common place to come and worship. And they were commanded to. This pilgrimage that they all took is commanded in Exodus 23, 14 through 19, if you want to go back and look at it. They would each come and this worship, this response that they had to the goodness of God, because there's power in corporate worship together. Anyone that says things like, well, I don't need to go to church, I don't need the church, I worship at home, and I don't need the church. What they're really saying is, I don't like the messiness of church. But guess what? Life is messy. Life is messy. Have a kid or two. Have a dog for Pete's sake. It's messy. Or, I don't know how we're going to sell our house. People are going to be like, well, it looks like they had a dog. Yeah. I don't know how dog hair got into every crevice of everything. There's like unopened tins of biscuits we have in our freezer that have dog hair in there. It's magic. But church is messy. But there is power in the corporateness of coming together and worship as people. So in verse 5, Verse 5 obviously is the precursor to verse 6. Duh, it comes before it. However, this verse about judgment comes in. This verse about judgment comes in. And as verse 6 is talking to you about peace, but as Amy and I talked about earlier this week, there can be no peace without justice. Did you think about that? There can't be peace without justice. And so as we begin to talk about the peace that comes, he says, Now, there's judgment and there's justice that's going to take place there. And there can be no peace without justice and rule. And so when we get to verse 6, verse 6 says, pray for the shalom. Now, I know that some of y'all, you know, in the 70s, you thought it was really cool. And someone said, hey, how's it going? And you said, shalom. And they were like, oh, man, he's a soul brother or something like that. You know, shalom is greater than just this pass by word or something that we would say, Shalom, shalom literally means the state of wholeness where things and people are living and being in the state that they were created to be in. Shalom is living and being in the state that you were created to be in. 
So there's health, there's wholeness, and there's fullness. And realize that even in the rest of the text when he says pray for the prosperity, prosperity, the, the verb actually in there, in the word in, in, in Hebrew is the shavlah. And it doesn't mean richness and wealth. It means a resting in the power and the presence of God. And so he says this, pray for the peace. And then in verse 7, verse 7, you know, O Jerusalem, may there be peace in your walls. How ironic is this verse here 2,000 years later where Jerusalem literally means foundation of peace, yet there has rarely ever been peace in Jerusalem. And so we as Christians, we can look at this, and and Christians, we understand that we pray for peace because what we know is that there will not be peace in Jerusalem until Jesus reigns on the throne there. As Isaiah says this in 9, 6, and 7, and then Luke 1, 26 through 33, there will be no peace until Jesus reigns there. But as has been said before, people say, why bother praying for the peace of the Middle East? Why bother praying for peace in the Holy Land? And we can say there may very well be no peace until Jesus reigns, but there can always be more peace than there is right now. Same thing for the church. The church is not going to be perfect until Jesus comes back. But there's always room for more perfection, more peace in the church. And so that's what we pray for. Then verse 8. I love that David says this himself because David talks very openly about all the people that hate him and talk bad about him. A lot. So verse 8 says, for the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be with you. Within Jerusalem, there were so many who opposed David, yet he prayed for their peace. Because peace for all is good for you. I'm going to say that one more time. Peace for all is good for you. And so I, I know that it's very easy, and we like to say things like, my enemy's enemy is my friend. That's a very worldly thing to say. But the reason why Jesus, on a very technical note, said pray for those who persecute, pray for your enemies, is because peace for all is peace for you too. And then verse 9, again, come back to the non-rewarding. This is not about rewarding people for praying for Jerusalem. It's not about you know praying this and somehow getting this. But notice that he says, for the sake of the house of the Lord. What did the house of the Lord stand for and what happened in the house of the Lord? Worship. For the sake of God's glory, for the sake of God's presence, he says, I will seek. And I love that he says, I will seek, because seeking is not something you can do from your couch. Husbands, we know this. Your wife says, have you seen such and such? And you're watching the game, and you're like, and she says, what? And you say, and then you say, what would you say? Because you heard what she said, but you just don't want to get up. But he says, I will seek. Seeking is a dynamic, active thing. He says, I will seek what is best for you, Jerusalem. And we as Christians can take Jerusalem because when we said it is a tight-knit community of God, we can substitute Jerusalem for the church, for the body of Christ, for the people of God, because we're the people of God. John says we've been grafted in. So we've been grafted in. But this work, David says, I'm going to have a dynamic. I'm going to have an active doing. I'm going to have an active praying. I'm going to have an active helping of God's people because I want to do what is best for the people of God. So if you're new to Corinth or um, new to this service, I'm not kicking him out because I didn't think he was doing well. He was doing great. We always split our sermon time here. 
Um, and Paul had what I think is the kind of cool task of um, shining a spotlight on Psalm 122. And I have what I consider the incredibly unfortunate task of shining Psalm 22 on us. Because um, I'll tell you, I really liked this psalm until I started studying it. And now I am less sure how much I love this psalm. Um, because like Pastor Paul said, uh, peace is an active Thing. and seeking peace is active and it's tied up in justice and I think if you would have asked me about three weeks ago am I in favor of peace and justice I would have said to you absolutely I am peace is a great thing justice is a great thing I want all of this in our world and I want it in abundance until I thought about the question and the problem is I'm not so sure that we always really want peace and that is because, much like Pastor Bob ruined the mountains of Psalm 121 for you last week, I'm about to ruin the concept of peace for you today. Because if you ask me most of the time what I think about peace, I would tell you it's something like um, quiet, right? I would say, yes, I want peace. Leave me in peace, meaning I've shut my office door for a reason. Don't walk in there. That's what I'm thinking of as peace. But peace has nothing to do with me getting what I want. Likewise, justice has nothing to do with me getting the thing that I'm most comfortable with and what I most want. I found this great uh, quote a couple weeks ago in a commentary on this um, passage that said, the peace that the pilgrims wish for Jerusalem is a calm undisturbed by social conflict within and dread of enemies without. So they're looking for a peace that means within our own community there is peace and there's nothing attacking us from the outside. So I wanna think about the circles that we run in. Maybe you're thinking of your family or your neighborhood or your workplace or the church or the body of Christ in Hickory or whatever the circles are that you see yourself in. Where do you see conflict inside? And what are the threats that you can perceive from the outside? Now, my hunch is most of you can think of somebody who's stirring up trouble in one of your circles or something that might be coming to get into your circle that will mess up your equilibrium of peace and happiness and joy. That's the easy part of Psalm 122. The harder part is to pull yourself out of that, take the 30,000 foot overview and ask the question, where am I part of the problem? Where am I creating uh, the lack of peace and the lack of justice and the lack of unity for people? And I'd be willing to bet that at different times and in different places, you, like me, can identify, if you're being honest with yourself, places where other people have really messed up your peace and security. And if you look closely enough, probably places where you have been the cause of the messed up peace and security for other people. And friends, that is not a pleasant thing to have to look at in ourselves. It's just not. But peace is not the same as everybody else leaving you alone so you can finally get your way. Um, I think a great example of this is like, if I know you're an alcoholic and I hand you the keys to the liquor cabinet and say, go ahead, have peace, do whatever you want to. I'm not building up your wholeness. I'm not giving you the best shot at the life that God created you to live. I'm enabling you to be left on your own, but I'm not doing anything positive. In the same way, peace is not just me living a life that has no, um, conflict and no uh, disruptions. Peace, um, as Pastor Paul and I have talked about so much this week, peace always comes at a price and peace rarely looks like peace when it's happening. It always looks like peace in the end. It doesn't look peaceful in the process. And what peace really means is that God transforms us so that we live life and we live in community the way that he imagines. But the good news about peace is that it also comes with the fullness of the kingdom of God. And, and that's a pretty good trade-off if you're willing to give up your own comfort for the kingdom of God. But still, it's, it's a hard one to embrace at the outset. 
So the first question that I'm trying to have us ask ourselves today is, do we really want peace? Are we ready to say, it's not about what I most prefer, it's not about my personal comfort, it's not about the thing that is like the groove that I've gotten into that I wanna contain and maintain. Um, it, it's not just about me. Peace has to do with community, and community, oh my goodness, I have preached this sermon like four times in the last three months. Community is messy every time you do it, and that's because every person in a community has different values and different priorities and different ideas of timelines and different things they want to accomplish. And putting that all together into a peaceful community, friends, the process is not easy, but it's so, so worth it. So if you're not at the point where you're saying, yes, I want that peace, I'm going to tell you that's okay. Every one of us has seasons where if we're being really honest with ourselves, we can say, I would much rather have things the way I want them and the way that I think they're going than what you know might be the big picture that God envisions. If that's where you are, it is okay to be honest and say, right now, I just really want things my way. That's okay. We're all on a journey. If that's where you are, embrace it. My encouragement would be to pray through that season. Ask God to help you be ready to be transformed. Ask God to uh, make you want to be a person of peace. Ask God to give you vision to see that there might be something more. I, I truly believe that those kinds of prayers where we ask God to like give us excitement to get on board with his plans are prayers that God really loves to answer. But if you are at a place where you're going, okay, peace and security might cost me something, but it's totally worth it. Justice might cost me something, but it's totally worth it. Then what do we do? Like, where is the way that we can seek peace? Because like Pastor Paul said, um, seeking peace is always an active thing. You don't seek passively. So the first one is exactly what the psalmist tells us, and that is to pray for peace, or more broadly, as Pastor Paul also told us, to pray for shalom, for wholeness, um, for the people around us. Now, most of you know that at Corinth, we don't make a lot of um, uh, political partisan statements, and so I wanna reiterate what Pastor Paul said, that this is not necessarily about the government of Jerusalem, but to that end, whether you are pro-Israel or pro-Palestine, you can pray for peace, even if you don't agree with the people you're praying for you can pray for peace. Um, and that is one of the things that we, that we are doing in this passage, is we're looking for places where there are disruptions to the created order. Because um, if we go all the way back to Genesis 1, we see that God created a perfect creation that is full of peace and full of order and full of unity. And of course we see that crumble, right, as Genesis evolves. But anything that you look at that you say, that's not the way God designed the world, you can pray for peace in that place. More than anything, this psalm is about the presence of God and the kingdom of God and the reign of God being realized everywhere where there's chaos and disorder and disunity. And sometimes God does bring about that order and improved unity through uh, very flawed places and very sinful people and sometimes even corrupt institutions of whatever size. Uh, but the ultimate thing is that in any case, God is acting. And we know that God is always acting for peace and for justice. That's always where he's driving. He's always trying to get creation back to that wholeness and the shalom that he designed it to have. So as you look around, I want you to think about places in our world where there is an absence of peace or justice. And I don't think it will take you long to find either. Pray for 
broken people that you might know who don't have an internal peace or wholeness about them. You can pray for families or marriages that you know are struggling, that don't have peace in their homes. You can pray for peace in the midst of loss. Even in our community, we have seen um, tremendous losses lately. You can pray for peace in those situations. You can pray for peace in your workplace, for peace within um, your church. You can pray for peace of the neighborhood. You can think broadly and pray for peace among war-torn nations all around the world. And when you're ready to go a little deeper, we put feet and hands to our prayers, right? That's what we do as the body of Christ, is we turn our prayers into actions and we actually do things. Now, before you start to resist that idea, I'm not necessarily suggesting that everybody do massive life-altering things to work for peace and justice, like go and joining the Peace Corps or doing something else that like takes you around the world full-time. That might be what God is calling some of you to do. I don't think that's what God is calling most of us to do. Because remember, peace is not about stopping all fighting, and justice isn't about um, just having things happen the way you want them to. There, there are a lot of ways right here in Hickory that you can work for peace and justice and the wholeness that God desires for all of creation. So at the very most basic level, we're asking the question, what have we done? What can we do to promote wholeness around us? What can we do to promote the wholeness of God's creation? You might have a great idea. If you do, my encouragement is run with it. If God has put something on your heart that you can do to work for peace and justice, you are allowed to tune me out for the next two minutes. Just focus on that one thing. But if you're going, I don't actually know how to do that. I'm not sure what a great way to, to do that would be. Let me give you just a couple ideas. We've told you um, a long time ago, like almost a year now, we've been talking about our gospel justice programs at Viewmont and at Hickory High. And a way that you can bring peace in our community is by helping students who don't have great access to educational resources and support systems to have that fullness of educational opportunity that we know that God would want for them. Uh, just this past Friday night, we had an artist night here at church that I know some of you are at, and the proceeds from that went to benefit Forgiven Prison Ministry. Forgiven works with families that have been torn apart by really bad decisions and criminal behavior and imprisonment, and there is a lack of peace in a lot of those families. And so you can donate a day of your time, and you can go and help put families back together. You can go out and volunteer to help build our legacy house, and you can give security to a family uh, that has been lacking in that because they don't have a home. You can help to make all of these things a reality for people, and not many of them take more than a little bit of your time and a little bit of your effort. Uh, the flip side of today's bulletin insert actually is about Foster Care Sunday, which is today. Uh, you may not be able to foster a child. If you can, by all means, pursue that. But if you can't, there are ways that you can help the foster care system and you can support those who can foster children in their homes. There are ways that you can bring about peace and security in this community and in this time. When we look at it, as, as uh, we've talked about already, Jerusalem is a tremendously unlikely place for peace. There is no logical reason in the world why Jerusalem would have peace and why Jerusalem would be tied to this notion of peace. And yet, that's exactly what the scriptures do and that's exactly what God does because God is in the business of using really unlikely places and really sinful people and really terrible situations to transform and create peace. And if I had to tell you what my personal belief is on that, I think it's so we can never take credit for it. When peace and security and justice happen, by God's definitions and not by ours, it tends to be so radical that we can never say, oh, of course this happened. Look how good we are. Look what a great setting we had. 
God always breaks in in the worst places, in the worst times, in the worst situations, and does the most radical transformation, and that is a beautiful thing. Friends, seeking peace is not easy. There is a hymn that I'm going to quote in full at the 11 o'clock traditional service. The last verse of it, it's the most haunting verse of a hymn I've ever heard in my life. It says, the peace of God, it is no peace, but strife closed in the sod. Yet let us pray for but one thing, the marvelous peace of God. That song has been haunting me for over 20 years now, but I think the hymn writer is onto something. It's not an easy process. It's not a pretty process. It's not a smooth process. And a lot of times our work for justice and peace might look like mucking our way through strife closed in the sod. But at the end of the day, most things that we value do come at a price and peace certainly can have a high one. But when we seek what God seeks and work for what God works for, we really are living out our calling as Christians. And in that way, our journey up to Jerusalem is one where we approach the house of the Lord with joy and we choose to submit ourselves to the reign of God and we choose to praise God and we choose to work for God's justice in the world and we choose to take up our cross and follow Jesus because ultimately peace and security and justice are choices that we make. And we do these hard things because we know they matter. And when we truly believe that God is good and God is in control, I think we can't help but submit to his will and seek his justice and his peace and his security for all of his creation. Like Pastor Paul said, it is a huge undertaking that we in our earthly lives will probably never see the end of. But not seeing the end of it is not a good excuse to not start the process. And I think the way we should start is exactly the way that the psalm writer and that terrible hymn writer did it to start by praying for the marvelous peace of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we live in a time that is so full of chaos and injustice and things that just don't look fair and don't seem right. And we pray for your eyes to see the places that justice has been uh, corrupted, where peace has been torn apart. And we pray that you would give us ways that we can create peace, create security, create justice. We pray to be your instruments. And we pray as we do that, that you would give us the humility and the grace to know that the things that might at first seem to be peace and justice and security to us may not be the things you want. So Lord, would you empty us of the preconceptions we have of how these things should look? Would you um, give us open hearts and open eyes and open hands to do your work in this world? And we pray that as we do, you would be glorified, that your kingdom would grow and that people would see that you've created us to be a people and a world of shalom, of wholeness, of complete unity of community that functions together. We know that we will only see that in its fullest form when we see Jesus face to face, but we pray that you would help us to turn this world, your world, your creation, into something much closer to the good creation that you designed it to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.